0: Good evening, Guam. I'm Tyrone Titanell, and welcome to the Data Hub. Um, we'll be here every Tuesday night from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Uh, to talk about issues in depth and at length uh, that concern Guam and in its future. I, I suppose in, um, in starting, I should explain why I decided to do this program. In my day job, I'm Director of the Bureau of Statistics and Plans and have been uh, for almost a year now. Well, actually, a, a full year, uh, this being Jan- uh, January 7th. And um, in reflecting upon my time as director of the Bureau of Statistics and Plans, uh, there were like two things that struck out me very early. Uh, number one is, although I was familiar with the Bureau, uh, what it also hit me was the broad variety of things that the Bureau of Statistics and Plans does. It, it, uh, it deals with land use planning. It deals with compact impact data and prepares the report to justify compact impact reimbursement. It uh, deals with now, uh, particularly this year in 2020, the 2020 Census of Guam. It's the lead government of Guam agency that handles that project. It also deals with coral reefs. It uh, deals with um, a lot of criminal justice issues, including uh, the new federal mandate for, the, uh, for prison rape elimination and, uh, and increasing awareness. It uh, produces the consumer price index. And it does an awful lot of, uh, of uh, other things that impact a large range, engines, including the military build-up. We have a role in, in that process as well. And the uh, second thing, besides the variety of the things that the Bureau um, sort of uh, addresses are involved in, was the degree of the people were actually interested in this stuff. And they were interested in the details. And uh, yeah, is it a... C- but the pro- thing is that some of the stuff the Bureau gets involved in, there are uh, hard to explain in like a 30-second sound bike, or to give it to do justice in a thirty second sound bike or um, a few um, uh, lines in a newspaper here and although the media does uh, a good job of covering these issues uh, because of the competitive nature of the media environment and the limitations nowadays uh, they they don't always have the opportunity to go into these issues at length um, and it occurred to me that uh, given the opportunity provided me by the good folks at and Broadcasting this would be a great chance to uh, provide uh, discussion on uh, in a long form on some of these issues. Um, so perhaps in, in, in describing that's we're going to address here, I should upfront and say what we're not going to do. Uh, this is not going to be a show that will ta- tackle the hot topic of the day, although it will be topical. That's uh, I leave that to uh, other people in the uh, in the news business, including some of the um, hosts of uh, on this station on K57 who are very good at it here. If you're uh, looking for a show that's going to focus in on the uh, latest incidents of politicians throwing rocks at each other, this is not going to be the show for you. However, if you're interested in, in facts, uh, not slogans, if you're interested in just uh, expertise and not just any opinion that somebody has at to the top of their head, then this is what we're going to try and provide you. Every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. Uh, for an hour and a half of, of discussion and exploration of issues with people. Who actually know what they're talking about? Um, uh, there is an old adage about you know everybody, everybody has an opinion. And they also have one of something else. But I won't get into that detail. But but li- this is I think a, a great chance to uh, for people who are interested on on issues today, for example, like coral reefs and uh, and and things, what's happening in the coral reefs and those and those uh, concerns, and want to listen to experts talk about this at, at length. Uh, that's what we're going to try and do in this program here. Uh, the topic for today that we've written on the inaugural show for uh, the Data Hub uh, is going to be on the geopolitical situation and how it affects Guam. Not just uh, Guam's future, but Guam today. Uh, historically, uh, Guam has always been impacted by the world and its place in the world. Impacted by the geopolitical situation, going back to the days of the Spanish galleons, um, Guam was was colonized and not uh, by the Spanish and not. Really, the rest of Micronesia uh, aggressively, because they needed a way station to supply the Spanish galleons going through and from their, uh, uh, the, the Spanish colonies in North America, Spain, and Asia, and the riches of Asia. And as the centuries progressed, here Guam uh, got importance as we move from sail to steam as a coaling station. And it's that for that reason why, at the conclusion of the Spanish-American War, in which the U.S. was victorious over Spain. Uh, one of their uh, many demands from Spain uh, was not only the transfer of Puerto Rico and the Philippines but also Guam but not any of the other um, islands within Spanish Micronesia at the time and as a consequence uh, Guam became a, a US, to U.S. possession at that time now in the, in the interim uh, Spain having lost the Spanish-American war uh, sold the rest of Micronesia uh the colonies to Germany uh, which they had for several decades until the end of World War one when uh, uh, Germany lost and they uh, uh, through the Treaty of Versailles and a number of mandates here Japan took all, all over all of German Micronesia and that's how we ended up with the Japanese Empire on the footstep of Guam which was uh, ended up to be um, has its own consequences as a good deal of World War two was fought in this part of the world and and Guam uh, and Guam and this region this area here continue to have a, a significant importance as the in the post-war uh, post-war period uh, particularly through the Vietnam War which infected us um, uh, tremendously particularly economically um, also you know as as the world changed and the Cold War ended uh, that also affected us economically That that's brought the onset of BRAC and the closure and uh, the relocation of a number of military units and the sort of donning down of military spending as a consequence of the end of the Cold War. And, um, and also as, a, as international events uh, progress, you know, uh, for example, there are, there are things that happen in the world that even though they don't happen in our region, like World War II happened in our region, uh, that still impact it. A good a classic example is, is 9-11, something that happened in New York uh, but it had a chilling effect on uh, tourism uh, worldwide, including Guam. We suffered a major tourism downturn in that post-9-11 period. Uh, we also suffered another uh, downturn in the post-9-11 period in the first Iraq war, uh, something which is, uh, should be of interest to everybody uh, today, given that they we're now in a period of rising tensions in, of all places, Iraq. And uh, there's been a lot of speculation as to um, where that will lead, whether that will lead to a full-on conflagration, or whether it will lead to a major terrorist attack. And even if if, no, if, um, if none of that happens in our part of the world, it's bound to affect us, and has as, as did the first Iraq war, uh, or a major terrorism event like 9/11 will ha- had an effect on us. And so, to discuss this and to um, uh examine some of the possibilities out there, not just from a um, uh, situation happening in the Middle East, but other things happening uh, in our region regarding China and Korea here, I have my good friend Ginger Cruz. <laughs> uh, Ginger, uh, for those of you um, uh, maybe too young to um, to know, was a major media personality on Guam uh, and is still fondly remembered by Uh, People of my (coughs) age, (laughs) you know, and uh, I got to know her well. was a good friend when uh, we both served in uh, the Kateras-Bidai administration, and she was director of communications. And then after uh, uh, that administration end, Ginger went on to um, greater and bigger things. Good, good evening, Ginger. Good
1: evening, Tyrone, and Uh thank you very much. It's an honor to be here for your inaugural show. And uh, I I think it's an amazing idea to do a long format on issues that are um, topical and important for people to really dig into. Uh, One of my favorite uh, things to listen to nowadays is podcasts. Mm. And I think they sort of fill that need and that niche. Well,
0: well, actually, I'm advised that what K-57 does, or Sunson does, is that they take these programs and put them on their podcast they network. Do. So the podcast will be available. I don't I don't have the link tonight to announce over the air, but <laughs> I've asked our, our our producer, Jeremy, to get on it. And so by by next week, we'll be able to uh, post online and say out loud where you can get the podcast in case you've... Uh, want to catch up in previous programs and or else else you come to the middle one and find out what the hell were they talking about before <laughs> I caught them you know the sort of uh, the sort of experience that um, that uh, is 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 um, is is relatively new to uh... people of my age here but i can remember the time when you know you had to catch it there as there's lies or else you know you just hear from other people <laughs> so ginger just to bring people um, kind of up to speed what have you what have been up to since our days as uh, in, the, in the governor's office what have you been up to
1: well, it, it's been quite a journey. Started out, uh, I, I left Guam in 2000 because I looked at a calendar and I said, you know, I love Guam, and if I don't try and get off of Guam for just a little while, I'm not going to see the rest of the world and, and see what's out there and find, you know, new discoveries and learn more things. I said, I, I really need to get off Guam. Uh, be it for a while or for a long time, but, but I just wanted to explore. And, and as you know? many
0: people have done that, you've, you've come to the point in your life where you come home.
1: And I've come home, exactly. So, you know, you go around the world and you, you learn things and you see different things, and uh, I'll tell you, all of it just makes you appreciate Guam so much more. Uh, and so it's amazing to be back. Um, I've got a, a firm now, a consulting firm, and we've got some clients that we are supporting here on Guam, mm-hmm. and we're looking for ways to uh, be here uh, a lot more and, and be uh, more permanent and, and growing. But it, in the interim years, um, did some television in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Then I went on to be a, a deputy assistant secretary for Housing and Urban Development under Andrew Cuomo, under who's,
0: who's now governor of New York.
1: Exactly, and that was actually kind of fun because mm-hmm. you know I was doing work for him at the um, Department of Housing and Urban Development right at the time that he was considering a run for governor, mm-hmm. and it was quite fascinating to be. Uh, advising a man who is going to run for governor of literally one of the largest states in the United States with millions of people uh, and giving him crib notes from Guam mm-hmm. because you know the politics here is, is fierce and is strategic and the things you well, learn. It,
0: it may be our only blood sport <laughs> remaining now that cockfighting has been banned. So, it, yeah.
1: it really is. And, and I'll tell you, it's really fascinating because it directly transferred. He actually took to heart a lot of it. Uh, and his first run didn 't do too well, but mm-hmm. now here he is he's he 's the Governor of New York, so that was an amazing uh, experience uh Then I went on from there to do some some consulting for the Pentagon and then got uh drafted uh right at the beginning of the first iraq or the Iraq war in two thousand and three. To become the deputy inspector general for Iraq reconstruction.
0: Yeah, this is the second war, though, under George W. Bush. Second war, exactly. The second war.
1: Yeah, and so we uh, we were there. We had 150 staff, including investigators and auditors and inspectors, and we oversaw 62 billion dollars worth of funding that was spent, and and really spent a lot of time in Iraq, um, getting to know all of the different political parties, all of the leadership um remarkably many of those individuals are still in the government today i mean people mm-hmm. that i made friends with uh, the deputy prime minister barham sala uh, back in 2006 is currently the president of iraq mm-hmm. and and a good friend from those times so uh, it translated yeah. into into quite a lot of a lot of experience that still relevant today
0: and that folks is why i've invited ginger on the program today you know she this is a person with a wealth of experience in, in actually being in iraq you've actually worked and lived in the green zone i believe or no
1: we're no? outside we're oh, in outside downtown baghdad zone. okay
0: downtown baghdad even three better. weeks
1: ago uh, we have a, a, a villa right uh, downtown it's about four blocks away from the embassy Uh, When the protests broke out uh, in the beginning of October, you could actually hear the shooting and Mm. the tear gas from our front yard. So, I mean, we're... This was how many many days ago? Uh, This was the beginning of October, and Mm. it kind of continued all the way until December. I left uh, to come out this way via D.C. about mid-December. So, uh, it's been a couple of weeks, but I'm headed back next week Mm. to, to go back in, so...
0: Yes, and you have a place here here in Guam as well. I do. Yeah. yeah.
1: So so I'm living here in Guam now. Uh, I'm traveling between between the offices, um, and it's really fascinating to sort of see from both a you know a former government official and and a policy wonk just like you, Ty. I mean, mm-hmm. you you were somebody that uh, was always able to understand the the greater strategic uh, shifts that were going to happen in Guam because of. Things that were happening outside of Guam, and so I, I think that it's it's great to be talking to you at, at a time when things are getting really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, the the events of the last week, with the uh, massive protest and the symbolism of militias coming in and literally burning down the reception areas and the entryways to the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, that is going to have significant uh, consequences moving forward, and it was that that triggered the Trump administration's decision to assassinate the number two leader of Iran, which, you know, it's it's very interesting, and I, I don't know, uh, uh, people, when they're reading about it and you hear the rhetoric that's going on in the news, it's very different from the the killings of Osama bin Laden or mm-hmm. Baghdadi because those were terrorists. mm mm-hmm that were killed. And although Qasem Soleimani is technically labeled as a terrorist by the United States, he is also a head of the government. So... Or a leader in the government. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he's the number two guy. He called a lot of the shots. So it's a very different terrain that we are headed into because when you're fighting a terrorist organization, you're not talking about war. You're talking about asymmetric warfare. You're, mm-hmm. you're fighting a group that you're trying to root out around mm-hmm. the world. But when you do something like this, technically, it is an act of war. And mm-hmm. technically, you were talking about, um, in some sense, it's conventional war. I mean, Iran, just in the last uh, day or two, has said that they're no longer going to observe the limits that they put on uranium enrichment, which means they could be headed towards the creation of a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. So we are seriously on the precipice of... Some extremely dangerous uh, events globally that will inevitably scoop up Guam. Whether it's you know our men and women who are in uniform, uh, Chamorro sons and daughters that serve in the U.S. military that could get called up to serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we speak, they are pre-positioning uh, planes and, and resources in Diego Garcia. Uh, to potentially go in should something happen in Iran or in the Middle East. And I think the entire world, right at this moment, is sort of holding their breath, waiting to see what the reaction is going to be from Iran. Uh, they took three days of warning uh, for, for Qasem Soleimani. hundreds
0: of thousands of people Millions. Millions? Millions.
1: Oh. Um, th- again, the Western media likes to always downplay these things. But mm. when you... Uh, have a, a team and, and an office that reads Arabic uh, mm. and, and you see the photographs. It was millions of people mm. that, that turned out for this. So, so this is going to set a chain of events in motion that are inevitably going to uh, affect everyone's lives uh, as Americans, as Guam. Uh, one of the interesting things which I, I had a feeling was going to happen and then sure enough today I think either the, the New York Times or the Post ran a story about it Uh, Kim Jong un, as he is looking at all of this happening, one of his greatest fears is being assassinated by the United States. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, in the last year or two, the Trump administration has made overtures and has tried to talk about, you know, negotiation to get him to back off. Well, then he wakes up and he sees this. Mm
2: -hmm. He
1: sees a drone make a perfectly executed assassination, Mm -hmm. uh, clean, just. You know, mm-hmm. uh, gone right in seconds, and
0: and their U.S. bases just across the border in, in South Korea.
1: That has, I'm sure, triggered a paranoia. Um, like,
0: like he needed more excuse to be paranoid. Exactly. You know? So I just realized. Really
2: so then
1: the question becomes: How does he react if he knows that no matter how nice people are to him, or no matter how much they they say, "Oh, we want to get you to the table," if he knows that you've got an administration that is absolutely willing to pull the trigger and take someone out, regardless of the unintended consequences, Mm -hmm. how is he going to react?
0: Well, also I think, given that the U.S. attention is now back on the Middle East almost full full bore, I would think, uh, given his past behavior, he would take advantage of that distraction to move ahead on his own uh, nuclear program, um, capitalizing the fact the U.S. is that their attention is split, Trump's attention is split, and therefore, that is an opportunity to move ahead and move the goal lines, or, or the, uh, move the, uh, the line forward there on his own program. Um, w- speaking to the Sirson situation, one thing I found very interesting was unlike previous uh, uh, sort of ma- major crises like the first and second Iraq war, and even the, uh, the drive to get Osama bin Laden here, um, the almost tepid reaction from America's allies, um, Boris Johnson finally gave a, 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 st- a response to it that was kind of tepid of support. You know, we'll be our side sort of the deal here. Netanyahu has been a lot more reticent, you know.
1: Um, because he's really worried about what's going to happen to him yes, and, uh, and Israel.
0: He's made a comment about not being allowing Israel to be dragged into events. Yeah. And you would think uh, uh, that uh, they would be the ones who you know who have the more vested interest in, in dealing blows to um uh, two people like Iranian leaders. I mean the, uh, Israel is, a, is a, uh, and Iran are like are mortal enemies. But even in that, the, he seems to be concerned about the implications here. Um, so far, he's been very pleased with Trump administration policy in the region. But his sort of reserved comment, I thought, was extremely striking, even more so than America's closest ally, uh, the conservative Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, who previously had served as ci 's foreign secretary, so that thing stressed to me you know, the the level of uncertainty
1: i think and, there's, and there's fear. yeah there 's nobody globally who who is really ready to comment at this point because I think we 're all sort of collectively holding our breath to see what 's going to happen next um it 's not going to be good, whatever it is mm-hmm. um, you know, some some of the things that uh, we keep in mind. W- one, Iran uh, has publicly stated that w- it will be a symmetrical response, mm-hmm. uh, sort of keeping with the an eye for an eye concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, they, they're they're trying to put and it may out
0: may not be one response because be given that it's asymmetrical.
1: Uh, this is true. So, so we've got to see what's going to happen there. Uh, but in addition, the tension across the entire Middle East right now mm-hmm. I- is really, I mean. Unbelievably, taught uh, the the people in Lebanon uh, who who have uh, very close ties to Iran. Uh, given that uh, Hezbollah, which is the one of the political parties uh, in in Lebanon that is uh, funded by Iran, uh, the leader just came out in the last two days uh, and indicated in his speech that they know exactly where U.S. Marines are landing in Lebanon to preposition for anything that's happened in the region.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when they make statements like that, you start to get worried because this is a part of the world where there have been attacks on U.S. embassies. Mm-hmm. Ambassador Crocker, a good friend of mine, was, was injured in an attack on the Beirut embassy um, mm-hmm. many, many years ago and just an idea of of what could happen in any location either in iraq where the parliament has voted to give the authority to throw out american troops mm-hmm. uh, in saudi arabia where the administration has for the first time really prepositioned a significant number of troops as well mm-hmm. uh, just sort of looking at the whole geopolitical landscape and trying to understand what could happen and what will the response be? And, you know, th- this isn't one of those cases where you can easily think of a de-escalation. I mean, you, you really can't think of a reason to say, okay, we got even and now everybody's fine. We're going to go back to our corner. Yeah, well, That's the least likely outcome, I right. think. Right.
0: And it speaks to something else that's developed here, is that Iran has already, already won a victory because they now have the strategic initiative. Everybody's waiting for, what, for them to do something, as opposed to waiting for what the U.S. will do. Exactly. And and everyone, uh, a lot of people are almost frozen in place because they're wanting to see well, how, what is going to happen there, which is enormous advantages that Iran's been given uh, using um, based on the assassination of one of their leaders.
1: And I can tell you too, the other thing that it's done is it's really ratcheted up the fear that Americans have all around the world because, you know, Iran and Qasem Soleimani, the, the man who was assassinated, had built an incredible network of support around the world. And mm-hmm. we're talking South America and Africa. I mean, there, there's even organizations. You saw the attack in Kenya. I mean, mm-hmm. there are places around the world. Is it speculation
0: that that's connected?
1: Uh, potentially, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there are places around the world where they have built these cells, including the United States. Mm-hmm. where there are these groups of people which potentially could react to what's going on. So so really, this isn't even just looking at what is going to happen in, in the near region to mm-hmm. Lebanon and Iraq and Iran, but something could happen somewhere else in the world. And and definitely, Israel is in the crosshairs as well. So, I mean, everybody who is an American citizen, who is an international business person, uh, yes. everybody in the oil industry, everybody who gets on an airplane and, and travels around the world... Uh, for business or for pleasure
2: mm-hmm.
1: is now going to need to be more vigilant and more worried because it's very uncertain how, how and, this is going to play out. And just to step
0: back for a minute, uh, uncertainty of that level for whatever the cause here mm-hmm. is also not the sort of thing you want at a time when everyone's bracing for an economic slow d- slowdown for reasons that have nothing to do with the Middle East. Um, that that means they're likely to invest and uh, uh, and, uh, and, other stu- and other stuff here. And we have our co- uh, on our lines here uh, someone who also has um, uh, a great deal of knowledge about regional issues and, uh, and international issues is the Governor's Chief Advisor for the Military Build and Regional Affairs, uh, former Senator Colada Liangaro. Hi, Colada.
1: Hi, hi, Ginger. I, I'm really enjoying this. I'm sorry, I just turned in a little late. Uh, well, that's why out, we're going to find
0: out and find out where people can get this on the on the podcast or on the website. So, you know, people like you who, who come a little late can still go and listen and, and catch up on what has uh, been discussed before we got to this point. So go ahead, Carlotta. Yes,
1: uh, uh, Ginger, I know that you spent some time in D.C. and understanding politics. And I'm wondering... Uh, what kind of message is is being sent when um, um, the the Congress is so split right now, and their impeachment proceedings, and President Trump is beating a war drum? Um, are are we seen as? I'm just wondering what your perceptions are, uh, the, what uh, and what the Middle East, what they think about how 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 united are we? Uh, as a people uh what did, what is it saying to them that there's so much divisiveness in the Congress right now and uh, and I'll hang up and I'll just listen to your answers <laughs>
2: well,
0: well, good, actually, we may uh Jennifer, you can start talking but we're as as you understand from the news business, the we're, we're running up against a, a, i believe jeremy a a hard uh De, uh, cap at seven o'clock or in three minutes. Okay, so well,
1: we can we didn't start the answer. Here. Start the answer, and we'll come <laughs> back after.
0: the news. So Well, first
1: right of you. all, let, let me just thank Carlotta, uh, another amazing uh, media person who's who's now working on the military buildup and who will probably have, you know, a, a direct feel for for what is going to happen in the in the coming months as this plays out. Uh, that's a very good question. So, so the the challenges of. Uh, domestic politics in the united states are are definitely weighing on the international community um everyone in the middle east is is very aware that this is going to be an election year and so everybody is anticipating that the rhetoric will be increased because everyone is trying to posture and show that they are strong on defense and and they want to make a show to their base and i think that's Partly what we are seeing with the Trump administration is they are making good on their promise to their base that they are going to have a very strong response. Um, and, and that is playing into some of the actions that you're seeing taking place. Now, when you look around the world, there are so many international players with interests in the Middle East. Take, for example, Russia. Russia is probably one of those countries that is the most... Um, uh, benefiting the most from what is currently happening because they're sort of kicking back and watching the United States get twisted around the axle on this as the the unintended consequences of, of what's happening sort of play out. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about this after the break.
0: Yes, relating to um, the, at 7 o'clock, the CBS uh, News. Uh, I'll, get, I'll get the hang of the more shows I do so I can do a more smoother transition. Uh, but hang with, it, with us, with my uh, guest, Tinter Cruz, and uh, any callers who wish to call in the program, discuss the geopolitical situation, and we'll pick it up after the CBS News. the Data Hub with Tyrone Titano. I'm your host, Tyrone Titano, and I'll be here from 6.30 to 8 p.m. every Tuesday night uh, for some in-depth, long-form discussion on uh, issues and concerns uh, that matter to Guam and to Guam's future. And joining coming back with me here is Ginger Cruz. Hi, Ginger.
1: Hi, Ty. Thanks for having me. Yes, and
0: Ginger is here because uh, of one of her very, very... uh, uh, position she's held within a professional career. One of them is, as U.S. Deputy Inspector General for Iraq, uh, something that is of concern interest not only to PQS around Guam, but worldwide, given recent events. And the precarious na- uh, nature of uh, of peace is in the region and the prospect of a terrorism attack. And it was actually, uh, what's happening here was top of the news uh, that we just left, the CBS uh, Radio News. And so Ginger, there was a story in there about uh, the Iraqi parliament voting uh, to, uh, for the uh, evacuation of our, our, the removal of U.S. forces in Iraq and some official had written a draft letter and that led to some concern that it actually was going to happen. And So, given that you um, have, have, uh, have worked for the federal government as Deputy, U.S. Deputy Inspector General for Iraq and you still do business in Iraq, I would like to hear your comments on that news story.
1: Well, thank you, Ty, and I think that ties in perfectly with the, the question we got from Carlotta Leon Guerrero uh, just before, where you've got a split Congress uh, that is now faced with a a very major threat to the United States, to U.S. citizens, to U.S. troops around the world, uh, and as they're looking at how to react, uh, and everybody's on eggshells, uh, to hear that uh, somebody accidentally released a memo that was unsigned that says we were actually beginning a withdrawal from Iraq and then a couple of hours later to have the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense uh, rush to the podium and say, um, yeah, that was inadvertent. Somebody somebody hit the, the forward button on that, and, and that's not what we're doing. That was just an internal draft.
0: And, and if I got the news story right, they bad. forwarded it to the Iraqi government or the Iraqi military. Yeah, so is, it's not like internal. They send that
1: it. is is something that, you know, and, and it's it's in these times when things are very tense and... Um, it's not funny. I mean, there's a a lot of lives at stake here because if somebody makes a mistake, if somebody says something and everybody thinks that that's what's going to happen, uh, there could be consequences that could be life-threatening for our troops, for people around the world, for people who live in the Middle East. So, very concerning. And then you layer on top of that the fact that the United States is about to head into one of the most contentious elections that we—I mean, all of our elections are contentious—but this one in particular. I mean, you know, the, this time in the United States, uh, especially. I just came back from D.C., and uh, you know, it, it used to be a blood sport here on Guam, and it used to be a little bit more calm in the states. But now, I mean, you—you you can't have Christmas or Thanksgiving without families uh, that have disagreements over politics, just uh, you know, ruining the holidays o- over the division and. And to have a divided country, to have a country where you have uh, two political parties that can't agree on on very many things at all uh, in place at a time when you really need to have a coordinated, structured response and and a very deliberate response to things. I mean, you have a situation here where the president decided to take this action, which is going to potentially have massive impacts on the U.S. and around the world, without consulting Congress, which is uh, the normal course of events. Normally there's a classified briefing, you bring in the leadership of Congress, they're tied in because there's going to be a massive amount of funding that they're going to have to approve in order to ensure that this is carried out uh, you know, in, in a way that would protect American citizens. And you don't have that. And, and you have all of these layers of dysfunction—you uh, have the political dysfunction, you have foreign policy dysfunction—so, so it's it's really shaping up to be, uh, I think, a very challenging time at the beginning of 2020. And you know, the only thing that we can hope in Guam is, you know, maybe as all of this craziness sort of unfurls around the world, uh, more people like me are going to look at Guam and go, you know what? <laughs> That's the place to be because uh, you know this is one place where. At least there's peace and at least there's uh, sanity and and you know family and and some comfort and protection, but uh, unfortunately, for perhaps the men and women that are in the military, especially uh, or any you know families on Guam that have loved ones in the military, um, they're probably the most concerned at this point about what's going to happen next.
0: And in the first block, you know, uh, earlier you mentioned uh, that one of the events that has occurred recently that might be connected to what's happening in Iraq was the uh, uh, recent deaths of three American soldiers when a group linked to Al-Qaeda over on an airfield used by the U.S. in Kenya. Um, And in listening to you, I was, uh, you know, talking about uh, our minimum uh, abroad in uniform. And you'd also mentioned uh, a minimum from Guam abroad in in uniform. And... uh, over the last couple of decades. It's not been unknown for members of the uh, local reserve unit of the National Guard to be deployed to sub-Saharan Africa. Now I, d- I don't know what the current deployment is now. Um, I believe there may be some in Egypt but they obviously for uh, security reasons they're, they're, it's not always um, uh, widely publicized but I, I c- couldn't help thinking, listening to you Ginger, there was there anyone from Guam at this uh, U.S. Air Force uh, facility in Kenya and maybe near this attack. So. Uh, these are the sort of heightened concerns that are generated by, uh, uh, by issues like this. The other, the other thing also, you know, I was struck in listening to your uh, assessment of what's happening in D.C. You know, there's an old adage. Uh, there's a whole thing. Uh, there's one adage that says history repeats itself. And then there's another adage that says, well, history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I was, you know, uh, talking about President Trump and uh, his involvement with the impeachment situation right now, and he's facing a Senate trial. Um, and there's already the accusation been raised that one reason his motives for doing this assassination of that Iranian official was to distract attention from his impeachment difficulties here. And I recall way back when uh, Bill Clinton was going his own impeachment uh, uh, problems here, uh, he, that was the time he launched an American intervention in the civil war in Bosnia. And there were uh, Republican uh, members of Congress raised uh, the accusation then that he was doing to distract attention from his impeachment problems. Um, be that as it may, here you're right. Right, that this is not um, this is a not a good time, uh, given uh, the uh, the the conflicts that are happening in DC for the nation to face a conflict abroad, and to the extent uh, that will have um, it's impact on the American public. I mean, there's been a usual it was, it's been axiomatic that when America's a government abroad it unites, I think that in the current political environment. Uh, also, to be honest, the uh, based on the uh, disrepute in which the last Iraq war uh, has, uh, has come into not, this is not any reflection on, uh, on, on anyone who served honorably in, in that conflict, but on the decisions of the political leaders to do so. Uh, given that here, I think I think it's a very real question that um, how much the, the nation will be united uh, should, we, should we enter another major conflict. Um, in that region here. Um, a, a third war in, a, in, in, in the neighborhood of Iraq. That's, that's, that will be interesting to watch from uh, not just only because of our own uh, issues, of day-to-day issues and, and concerns and how it affects our, our life and safety here but uh, from a broader historical perspective that's going to be another interesting development. And, and, and now as I throw catchphrases and adits out there I w- it would pop into mind that whole Chinese curse may you live in interesting times
1: yes and that's why it's a curse because we do live in interesting times but uh, it's, it's interesting to sort of look at the, the broader understanding that's going on throughout uh, the mainland United States right now mm-hmm. while people tend to reach back and say oh everybody will band together if there's a mm-hmm. war and they'll all defend the United States you've got two things that are changing that uh, calculation mm-hmm. the first is you have war fatigue Mm-hmm. Uh, just as you did at the end of the Vietnam era, when pretty soon the public just could not understand the reasons uh, why our men and women were dying, what what was the point? And, you know, just like the public got tired of it mm-hmm. and at one point demanded that the United States pull out of Vietnam, I think we're pretty much there as well. Because now we've been at war for over 15 years, mm-hmm. which is an incredibly long amount of time. Mm-hmm. It's so long that some people's children uh, have grown up just thinking that we've been permanently at war in the Middle East. So you've got Afghanistan, where we have spent trillions of dollars. That's trillions of dollars that could have funded a health care system, that could have helped buy down people's college debt. I mean, just Infrastructure. trillions of dollars. And, and Afghanistan is not safer than it was when we started. You know, we, we went in there for a reason. Uh, after 9-11, but that reason has long gone away. And I think the fatigue that people have uh, for both the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars um, is going to definitely shape how they feel about the potential of any kind of engagement with Iran. And then the second thing I think that people have not really focused on yet because it's all just unfolding, uh, but this also could affect Guam. It could uh, come home a little bit closer, uh, maybe in the Philippines, And, and that was related to the attack in Kenya. Now the attack in Kenya was related to uh, the groups that are affiliated with, with ISIS and, and you know those groups. And they are basically on the verge of regrouping right now in the Middle East and around the world because the people that are reacting to the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, as much as everybody says, oh, Iran is our enemy and Qasem Soleimani is a terrible person, which he is, and, and you know he uh, was responsible for creating the IEDs that, that injured and maimed so many U.S. Mm-hmm. soldiers. But put that aside for just a moment, and, and let's talk geopolitics here. Qasem Soleimani was also the architect of the strategy to defeat ISIS in the Middle East. And the Iraqis and the Iranians who fought side by side on the ground with American air cover were the ones who defeated ISIS, who was potentially more dangerous and more evil and more horrible than Al-Qaeda was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you, you can remember when they were putting people on TV in orange jumpsuits and sawing their heads off. I mean, these Burning were... people alive. And these just... were... And, and putting them in cages. These were horrible, horrible people. And so, who actually fought that fight? Who actually pushed ISIS back and actually was responsible on the ground losing people? For Who was responsible for doing that? That, at the time, it was Iraq. It was Iran. They They were the key in, in that fight along with the United States. So, I mean, when you start to, to unwind how geopolitics happens, there's never, you know, Team Black and Team White. Mm-hmm. And when people say, oh, well, it's a good thing, we're we're really glad that this happened, and you look at all of the chaos and you look at what's happening, and you think the one, the worst thing that you could ask for right now when you've got... Uh, Iraq, which has no government, because the protesters since October overthrew the government, and they yeah. still can't get a government together. Uh,
0: perhaps you need to explain that to the listeners here, because we've to talk about the Israeli really parliament taking an action. We, um, and what you, what you really mean is there's a caretaker government. So right.
1: there's a caretaker government. So what happened right before all of this happened was, in October, I was nicknaming it the, the Arab Fall, <laughs> sort of going on the Arab Spring, right? Are we headed towards the Arab winter? I, it's not good. So mm. in, in October, uh, both Iraq and Lebanon, within just a couple of, of days of each other, had popular uprisings where the people took to the streets in amazing numbers to yeah. protest the corruption and the mismanagement of their governments and Mm. and demand the overthrows and at one point the protests by the people uh, had in Iraq risen to to hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, The government responded, killed about 500 of the protesters and as a result the Prime Minister stepped down. So now there's theoretically no government in Iraq. There's a caretaker in place. They've missed the deadline to actually name someone. So you're talking about an area of the world where Iraq has no government, they've got this temporary caretaker government, but they're having a constitutional crisis. There's still protesters in the streets, and I understood that today there was potentially going to be an effort by the military to forcibly clear Tahrir Square, where all of the protesters are, of protesters, which is now going to layer on another level of death and conflict mm-hmm. on top of this. So you've got people coming into the streets to to mourn and and to call for revenge over this geopolitical fight between the United States and Iran. And it's playing out in a country that itself is on the verge of collapse. And then the neighbor, just right over to the the left of it, is Lebanon, where, again, you have a very strong Iranian presence. Lebanon, too, has had protests. And in the last uh, couple of months, I I think we're going on three months now, Mm -hmm. they have no government. So amidst all of that, you still have major cells of ISIS terrorists mm. that are scattered all over the region, all over Syria, all over Iraq, uh, not in Lebanon because they've got some pretty good intelligence teams that have managed to keep them out, but in that entire yeah, region. the Lebanese are
0: too busy making money. And yeah, well, so, yeah. yeah.
1: So, so you've, got, you've got all of these, like it's the, the parade of horribles, right? That that mm-hmm. was what Donald Rumsfeld once called called it. And and this is the parade of horribles. It's like every bad situation that you could layer on top of each other is now just sort of starting to simmer. And the question is, how is the world going to react? And I think part of the reason that you're hearing uh, quiet coming out of NATO, quiet in Europe, quiet from uh, just about everybody, is because there's a lot of, of... Military and political organizations that are in crisis response rooms right now trying to figure out how this is all going to play out. And and I don't think that any of the options at this point
0: are good. You quoted Donald Rumsfeld earlier. The, another famous quote of his was trying to know the unknowable. Yes, you know,
1: that is exactly that. the quote.
0: And so. ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tyrone Taitano. You're here with the uh, for the Data Hub with Tyrone Taitano. I'm here with... Uh, my guest, Ginger Cruz. Uh, we are now like uh, roughly uh, uh, an hour into the program, and for those of you who want to catch up, I've been advised it's available on K57.com. You know, you can get the, uh, the full uh, taping of this program, and uh, of all the programs on K57, including podcasts as well. So, if anyone wants to catch up on the uh, dis- on the interesting discussion I've had with my good friend Ginger Cruz, who has uh, served as a U.S. Deputy Inspector General for Iraq. Uh, actually, still does business in the Middle East, including Iraq. Uh, we'll be heading to Iraq in a in a in about a week. A week in about a week, you know, yeah. uh, um, you can go to kv7.com and and not only get a here um, listen to the full program, but also um, your favorite podcasts, plus you know, uh, Spotify, Google Broadcasts, and more. It's available that way. So. Uh, Ginger, you know, it, give, give a sense though. You've talked about or uh, referred to how uh, one of the consequences of this is maybe the collapse of uh, Iraq. What would what would that look like? A uh, collapse of Iraq. I mean, and some in in the uh, in previous uh, discussions of this, because they've talked about the collapse of Iraq since Saddam's day. You know, and it usually was on a on a regional basis with uh, Kurdistan becoming a, a separate nation. Here, I get the sense though that this is a uh, uh, p- particularly as how Iraq has developed in the in the post Second Iraq War period, you know, as we ponder a Third Iraq War, um, what would a, a a collapsing Iraq look like? It,
1: the collapse of Iraq could take so many different uh, so many different paths. I think one thing to look at is how quiet the Sunni community and how quiet the Kurds have been uh, when the iraq parliament took that action to authorize the government to expel foreign forces uh, there was a boycott no kurds showed up no sunnis showed up so it was just the shia leaders that carried out the vote it was 170 to zero but uh, there's over 329 people in parliament so it's one of the things that's interesting is you've got Joe Biden running for president now on the Democratic ticket and one of the first things that he proposed way back in the day was the partitioning of Iraq mm-hmm. into a uh, Sunnistan, Kurdistan and shia yeah. um, it's,
0: it's important to note, though, uh, also Iraq is, you know, it's been argued as Iraq is not a real nation here. The borders were drawn by the British yes. for their own convenience. And uh, they they carved up Kuwait just because they had a relationship to the uh, to the ruling family in Kuwait, and that's how you have this hodgepodge of connections between Shiites and Sunnis and of all things Kurds, uh, with half the Kurdish population in, in Turkey, and uh, and it's very true. well and a third in Iran. And a third in Iran. And it, it's been very true for a lot of conflicts in former colonial empires, in not just the Middle East, but but Africa as well, where you had boundaries that that crossed tribal boundaries. Right. Uh, this has led to all sorts of sectarian uh, violence and wars, and and in places like Rwanda, a- absolute horrors. Uh, so, I, I think that contributes the, uh, a lot to this sort of uncertainty as well. So. So you say the the Sunnis and the Kurds are very quiet. Is it, what does that what does that mean? Are they watching and waiting, or is there trying to signal something?
1: So at this point, the, the Sunnis and the Kurds are probably going to do everything in their power to ensure that the United States does not leave Iraq, because the one thing that everyone is worried about is the Shia majority government just completely aligning with Iran, and uh, that would be. On a, on a very you know, basic local basis, very bad for Kurdish autonomy mm-hmm. uh, and, and for the, the fates of the Sunni uh, provinces, which tend to be out towards the west. So uh, they're really being very quiet. Uh, there's, it's a dichotomy. There's a strong sense of nationalism. And you know, up until this happened, the protests that were occurring in Iraq were transcending Mm -hmm. the Sunni-Shia-Kurd splits. They were really trying to unify everybody and say that the whole country was rallying behind the Iraq flag and they wanted to eliminate corruption and have a stronger country. And then this happened, and all of a sudden, it's really highlighted the differences once again. And, you know, people, anthropologically, I think, uh, it's really interesting to look at the world and understand everybody is either themselves or the other people. And there's a saying in the Middle East uh, from Ibn Khaldun that says, uh, Me against my brother, mm. me and my brothers against my cousins, me, my brother, and cousins against the world. And so, uh, and it's playing out exactly like that right now in Iraq because just before this happened, everybody was together and they were trying to get the government to change because they wanted to unify the country. And then as soon as this happened, you see. The, the Kurds and the Sunnis split from the Shia and, and it's go, everybody's going to go back to their nativist corner and protect and promote their own private interests, which at some point could conflict with the interests of the other groups. And it could get very bloody. There could be street fighting. There's Shia on Shia violence. I mean, it's, it, it could really get very bloody and uh, it will affect all sorts of things, not only security around the world uh, oil prices are already going through the roof. Uh, mm-hmm. You're going to feel that in Guam mm-hmm. because the gas prices are going to be going up.
0: The oil price um, surcharge and the GPA bills.
1: Exactly. And and just a general sense of security in the world is going to be affected uh, if that were to happen.
0: You know, and, and listening to your quote, you know, and, and my, it ends my cousin against the world. Uh-huh. Man, that sounds like a very tomorrow quote as well, you know. So <laughs> so on that note, as we ponder it, I'm going to take a, a quick break here. My name is Taron Taitano. You're with the Data Hub with Tyrone Taitano every Tuesday uh 6.30 to 8. Uh, and I'm here with my good friend and a f- former uh, U.S. Deputy Inspector General for Iraq, uh, Ginger Cruz, and we'll be right back after this break.
1: The American Association of University Women, Guam Branch, presents The Dish, a monthly program about issues affecting women and girls in our community. The Dish airs on K57 the last Saturday of the month from noon to 2 p.m. On The Dish, we'll talk about women's health, violence, ageism, workplace equality, financial security, and more. The Dish, serving food for thought on issues that are important to women. Brought to you by the AAUW Guam Branch on Newstalk K57.
2: Buenas afañielos. Wahu si Robert Underwood. Para beju tutu nuevo na programa guinig K K57 Jan interrogi fino chamoro, fino nativo, but mas fino hardza Ifinota. fino ta. na maguf, na bubu, na mahalan, na chalik lodi na Ifinota with Robert Underwood
0: every Monday night at 6:30 on News Talk K57. K-57 is heating the talk up again. Patty Arroyo, the talk you need to start your day. Andrea Pelicani, the news as it happens. Logan Rages, financial news to fuel your workday. Tony La Morena, anything goes, talk is here. A new day of Guam's hottest talk has arrived. This is News Talk K-57. Guam's Hottest Talk has a new perspective on business, news, and politics. It's The Breakdown with Logan Regis. Join Logan as he aims to break down or demystify different processes in business and politics, from traditional to digital marketing and from local to federal government and politics. Business, news, politics? I'm Logan Regis. Tune in every weekday from 12 to 2 p.m. for The Breakdown.
1: It's The Breakdown every weekday from noon to 2, only on News Talk K57.
0: K-57 is going green on Thursday nights with Dave Duenas and Man Land and Sea. Tune in for the latest on sustainability, the environment, and everything you need to know to keep our island eco-friendly. Thursdays at 6.30 p.m. Sponsored by Bureau of Statistics and Plans, Guam Coastal Management Program. And welcome back. Uh, my name is Taron Titanow, and you're with the Data Hub with Taron Titanow every Tuesday night from 6.30 to 8 p.m. here on K-57. And uh, if for those of you who want to catch up on tonight's broadcast or any future broadcast, you can find it on k57.com, along with all the uh, uh, podcasts and other sh- great shows on the Sorensen Broadcasting Network. Uh, with me here is Ginger Cruz, and as we left the previous break, she gave... Uh, uh, as she is apt to do, uh, a very pithy quote. Uh, and Ginger, well, you could you repeat the quote? And, and, and where did it co- who was the author? For and where did it come
1: from? So, so there is an Arab historian, and his name is Ibn Khaldun, and he was writing about Arab sensibility. He wrote uh, a series of three major uh, books, which talked about how the Arab culture uh, shaped. Saudi Arabia and the Middle East and, and the way that people are the, the sort of free roaming Arabs who uh, the Bedouin uh, culture and where they have camels and they, they set up their tents and they move around and you know how the oil it, it helps you understand that sort of the sensibility in the way people think and so the quote goes uh, me against my brother me and my brother against my cousins me my brother and cousins against the world and to me, that's the the standard anthropological view of the world. Whenever you don't have an external threat, uh, you fight among yourselves. Uh, it kind of happens anywhere. Uh, and then as the fight gets bigger or if somebody comes in from the outside, uh, then obviously everybody on the inside is on one team because you need to be on a team in order to, to defeat the enemy uh, that is outside. So it's the us and the others. And uh, that really does describe how they frame a lot of the decisions and policies in the Middle East because, you know, one day they'll be on opposite sides of, of the, the spectrum, and then the minute that you introduce a threat from the outside, uh, everybody pulls together, and and it's quite a formidable force. So,
0: And with that, Ginger Cruz wins the quote-of-the-night competition here. <laughs> I had
1: uh, three quotes earlier on... Uh,
0: on you know how history rhymes and history repeats itself and the Chinese oh, curse I like Ch- that. Yeah, but th- this one kind of outdo- this single quote kind of outdoes them all combined. So <laughs> thank you. so you get the crown tonight thank as you, for a quote you. of the night. Um, we have in the remaining like twenty five minutes of the program, I want to make a, an a, a abrupt turn from uh, the Middle East and and bring it back to the region and. Um, one of the things I'd, uh, that I'd like to hear your perspective on is developments in the region. I mean, uh, there's been new con- uh, concerns about what's happening with the Chinese rocket, which, you know, flew uh, everyone could see from Guam. And, and, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about, it, about the rise of China and their, uh, their moves into the region here. Uh, but also, I, would, I think has not gotten a, enough notice, it's what's happening in the Korean Peninsula, not just North Korea. Uh, but the dispute between uh, the Trump administration and South Korea, uh, the um, uh, South Koreans have long contributed to the uh, U.S. military bases there in South Korea. But the Trump administration wanted to increase it from $1 billion a year to $5 billion a year. And this has been quite a bone of contention uh, between the South Koreans and the uh, Trump administration. Uh, as a matter of fact, the talks on this collapsed last November, and I don't believe they restarted. And a recent poll of the South Korean... Uh, Public found only 4% in favor of uh, giving in to U.S. demands. So now we're faced with the very real prospect. Uh, it may be overblown. We'll see how this develops, you know, because a lot of the U.S. and South Korea have an in this. But all of a sudden, the the possibility has been raised that um, the uh, U.S. forces may leave South Korea, which has an impact on the region, but uh, from my perspective, Ginger, also a direct impact on Guam, because they, if they leave South Korea, where are they likely to go? And the most rec- uh, closest U.S. Uh, 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 territory is Guam. And exactly. that may have its own impact, And not to mention the move of the Marines and from the Marines from Okinawa uh, uh, to, to Guam. So as, as someone who's been Uh, involved in in defense policy as Deputy Inspector General. I'd like to listen to your perspective and the perspective of people you've uh, discussed regional issues with.
1: Well, we talk a lot with the Office of the Secretary of Defense as we are are following developments around the region. And uh, as you're looking at the pre-positioning of troops and the pre-positioning of uh, supplies, if there were to be a protracted conflict in the Middle East, you would need to be able to have... uh, chains and supplies to be able to get to the region. And as much as they could position forces in uh, Qatar, or they could position them in Saudi Arabia, or they could put them in Kuwait like they did during the, uh, the war in Iraq, uh, there is still going to be some challenge to placing troops there, because once you put a large number of troops in a foreign country, you are basically uh, attracting attacks. Uh, against those bases which would then impact those countries and I I don't know if people remember when we first went into Iraq we went to Turkey who was uh, an ally at the time you're talking about the first Iraq war second Iraq war
0: well we actually did both yeah that's true
1: that's true but in the second Iraq war the one that that, uh, we were involved in uh, they tried to get uh, basing uh, positions in Turkey and they tried to get overflight in Turkey and Turkey did not allow Mm -hmm. them to do that uh, and it made it very difficult for them to be able to fight that uh, conflict. Well, now you've got uh, a very interesting change in in the dynamics of the region. And the question is going to be, how are we going to, to do that? How are we going to engage? So it's going to stretch things thin. And so then the question becomes, if we're stretching the military thin uh, and we do have a conflict that we have to do in the Middle East, they're going to have to ramp down how much resources they put towards the Asia-Pacific region. And ironically, the Secretary of Defense had literally two weeks ago made the announcement that they were planning on uh, reducing the forces, pulling out of Afghanistan, reducing forces in Iraq, and then resetting the defense uh, positioning so that China was going to be the number one issue and Russia would be number two. What that would mean would be uh, an increase in focus on Guam, an increase in the funding for infrastructure, because Guam would be definitely mm-hmm. a, a huge part of any strategy uh, by the United States to um, increase its influence in the region, uh, especially with China going around and romancing the islands uh, that are currently renegotiating their Compact of free association with the United States. So with the eye on the Middle East now, China has a great potential to uh, perhaps expand its influence with a bit more freedom if the United States is too tied up in other parts of the world. Uh, So then that begs the question. I mean, right now the United States has 28,500 troops in Korea. uh, They've got troops in Okinawa that are going to have to relocate under uh, the Japanese uh, commitment to do that by 2025. Um, But are we going to have the the attention and the funding and be able to actually do that if there is another conflict around the world? So when the the Department of Defense looks at these, uh, the funding that they put in place and the strategies that they put in place, the United States normally prepares for what they call a a 2 plus 1. So they will Mm -hmm. have The ability to, exactly. So you could get into two different locations and then have a a conflict in a third location and they can cover that with the personnel that they have and the equipment and the funding. This is going to make it very interesting because while we were looking at transitioning out of the Middle East so that we could focus more on China, that may not be the case. So the impacts on Guam are going to be, Very interesting. Uh, And not just Guam. I think the CNMI is also going to play a a role as you're seeing the buildup of Tinian Mm. uh, and you're seeing the acceptance, I think, of the CNMI to uh, perhaps being a location where they will take more presence from Mm -hmm. the U.S. military. They they
0: certainly will take more bombing. Uh, yeah, they, yeah.
1: They'll they'll definitely uh, you know be some place that the United States will look at uh, to put people. And as much as Australia has offered uh, its location, it's just too far south. I mean, it's mm. five hours flying time south. Mm. Uh, Hawaii, seven hours too far away. Really, we're looking at Guam, and, and in fact, at the moment, Diego Garcia, which really doesn't have any infrastructure, but but is being used. So it will be interesting to see uh, how Korea reacts. Uh, are they going to. How
0: South Korea reacts?
1: How South Korea reacts. Are they going to be looking at those numbers? Uh, if South Korea does not want to pay the $5 billion, will the United States have to then decide what to do with those troops? And, and where and do they go? Exactly. Exactly.
0: So, uh, it would, it would, it would, so there's a line of thinking. A good portion would, would go to Guam. the next Western base here. That You're not going to go to the Philippines. You're not going to go to Japan. They just got moved from Okinawa. So, but on the other hand, you raise a very interesting point here how the heightening conflict in the Middle East may dry up funds that have previously been allocated for the military build up here on Guam. Um, I'd be interested to see how, uh, what do you think, how that would work, particularly since we're entering a stage where the a good portion of the funding for the military building won't come from the U.S. Treasury, they'll come from Japan. I believe they're going to be starting the first several hundred million dollars from Japan for the move. So that might be, uh, may alleviate this. It's a it's a sort of an interesting, if if not some rather disturbing, uh, set of balls to juggle in the air in terms of concerns. Now, you know, do uh, do uh, do we worry about a conflict in the Middle East because that will help to build up? And in which case, do we hope the South Koreans and the U.S. can come to a decision in, on the basing in South Korea so, so those bases can make up, uh, moves can make up for what is uh, would be declining here in Guam because of the Middle East and. Um, yeah, the Chinese curse. You you live in interesting times?
1: So, yeah. so well, the, the interesting things for Guam to look at, I think, right now, um, it's important for Guam to maintain good communication uh, with the military. Um, it's concerning to see the the lack of communication over the meteor slash missile slash <laughs> gigantic point, light to in the, the sky. Not, not to point,
0: <laughs> um, uh, because I believe uh, Tim Huggins and his people in the Homeland Security and with their military counterparts are, are working. To improve communication, but that whole incident, I was kind of struck. You know, if that uh, missile had been off the coast of California, I think the response would have be been a lot different True. than than what happened here. True. You know, so uh, here on America's frontier. You know, when it when that whole rocket thing happened. You know, I'm, uh, a friend of mine uh, sent me a text. That says, you know, Guam, America's Canary in the coal mine. Hmm. Um, but you know, uh, such as such as our situation. In given that um, that situation in in uh, in South Korea and the the uh, the, uh, nuclear threat from North Korea here, uh, from your perspective, how does China fit into all this? I mean, there's you know, in in talking about uh, the focus on China, uh, particularly, and it usually comes to their uh, their economic power. Though they've talked about their rising you know uh, military power, but they still rank third in the world behind. uh, the US and Russia, and largely because they just have uh, so many of it, you know. But uh, they are, though, laying down their second air aircraft carrier. Um, but the, what's really, the people take a look at the rise of Chinese influence is usually economic. And it's there's this view here, talking about how history rhymes, of China as this a- economic uh, behemoth that's going to be the world's largest economy in the coming decade. Uh, but I was sort of struck how a lot of this, uh, the rhetoric associated with China's rise, uh, I heard about Japan. And you think of the same reasons here. They were hard working, they produced this great post-war miracle here, they were on the cutting edge of technology, uh, they had this system in which the whole nation was involved, you know, in in state state control, and then uh, the bubble collapsed, and then all of a sudden the Japanese was not the model here. And uh, one of the concerns, by the way, of of worldwide uh, economic slowdown here has to do with China. Uh, where um, it's been argued that a number of the things that um, uh, people look to China in terms of stability, including the great state involvement in the economy, may actually be contributing to their problems. I mean, it's a reasonable case to be made that because of state involvement into the economy to stabilize or to boost income here, the public sector has starved the private sector of capital, and that has contributed to slower growth. And uh, what the people... um, Economics and observers have counted on the past China doing, which is this massive, you know, uh, spending infusion in order to keep the economy going. Even the Chinese government admits they're not going to do it again. If they're going to do it, it's going to be very targeted. On top of this, you know, um, the uh, the uh, Communist Party structure has become even more centralized. They've delimited term limits for the for the president. So, you know, talk about we're moving towards almost uh, a singular one-man rule, even for a country that large. And uh, you have to... Uh, their, their basic legitimacy for the Chinese government at this point is part national and part economic growth, which is, sounds rather brittle, actually. And, uh, you know, and, and if, if they ever hit it to a major slowdown, what does that do to their the social foundations, uh, particularly for minorities? I mean, like 1% of the population in China is Muslim. Um, you know, there are all sorts of situations are being set up there in Hong Kong. And so I'm I, I'm sort of like, I, not to dismiss all this other talking concerns about China, but having lived to, you know, how Japan was going to take over the world and well, how that turned out.
1: If you just look at the size of Japan, I mean, th- that was something that really was not going to make a lot of sense because Japan just did not physically have the numbers to be able to do that. And mm-hmm. if you look at China, the fact that they're pretty homogeneous in terms of their population, I mean, they're mostly members of the Han tribe, I mean, mm-hmm. at some level, and there's a a very strong sense of cohesiveness, there's the sense that uh, the the group is more important than the individual. There's so many things going for them culturally that give them a strong basis for riding out any sort of global shifts and changes and just slowly and steadily getting stronger and bigger. As the rest of the world starts to uh, head to their corner, and starts to engage in these conflicts, mm-hmm. uh, the conflicts are inevitably going to weaken many countries. Not in the sense that they're going to weaken their, their, their nationalism. They're just going to cost a lot of money mm-hmm. and cost a lot of lives. And at some point, uh, there's an impact on that. Think of it like a video game. You know, when, when you're, you're in there in the fight, the little energy bar is going down. And at some point, you know, we don't have a world where all of NATO is just ready to rush in behind the United States and say, yeah, we're behind you. If anything happens with Iran, we'll throw in our troops. A lot less likely to happen in in this instance. And so as individual countries get caught up in these uh, various conflicts around the world, China kind of lays back there. They've got their initiatives to just kind of go around the Pacific, go around Africa to make sure that they've got resources. The Internet Silk
0: Road project. You know, exactly. Yeah.
1: And and really what we're talking about is in the coming decades, if you're a futurist, in the coming decades, the fight is not going to be over uh, influence or over religion, the fight's going to be over resources. Mm-hmm. It's going to be over who can control food and fuel and be able to feed their population and, and you know give them what they need to survive. And China has thought of that. And they've been positioning themselves over the last several decades.
0: Including these places as distant as Africa. Not exactly. Just the to,
1: region, to, yeah. to make sure that they are able to... Garner the resources either through um, you know buying their way into various parts of the world and and putting people there and setting up little communities and making sure that they can access those resources so so as a resource giant China is going to continue to expand and the more the rest of the world gets caught up in conflicts of their own making, mm-hmm. the more they're going to spend their resources sort of running back and forth and buying more planes and spending it more on on all of the things that have to go into fighting these conflicts, which are incredibly expensive. Um, and and at some point, it's just going to wear down these these different uh, countries. And China potentially uh, is going to benefit from that because then they're going to be in a much better uh, situation in the region. So it'll be interesting to see how how everybody reacts, what paths are going to be taken, who gets involved... Uh, and, and how much everyone commits to any sort of course of action. Uh, but I can tell you, in a case like this, um, China's probably pretty happy, because nobody's focused on the Hong Kong protesters anymore.
2: No,
0: no. That's
1: OBE. They're, they're just going go
0: to quietly you know, so. do
1: what they're going to do, uh, and, and they're going to move ahead and uh, continue to build strength throughout the Pacific, by
0: U.S. Treasury bonds to finance Asia the Asia-Pacific Pacific
1: region. region. Yeah. Exactly. So. Uh, that's something to watch, uh, I, I think, in terms of Guam strategically. You know, the fact that we were never able to get a, a, a visa waiver to have, you know, large groups of Chinese come mm-hmm. and visit the island, we weren't able to sort of uh, get the economic benefit from that. Um, but I think that the dynamics of the region are definitely going to shift in China's favor.
0: So just to bring it home, what do you think of the implications here for life here in Guam? I mean, in, in one respect, I think rising uh, competition with China would... Uh, boost to our, 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 our position in terms of like uh, uh, federal military spending and uh, even attention to the region and issues on Guam, um, notwithstanding distractions like the prospect of a third Iraq war. Um, what what do you what do you think are the implications for for Guam life on Guam and Guam's economy?
1: Well, I think in the short term, there's going to be uh, some potential for a slowdown. Uh, I definitely think that the rise in international gas prices is just going to affect the cost of everything, and the cost of living on Guam is already very high, so that's going to be a a negative impact. I think it's going to, uh, in the immediate uh, sort of, Horizon. I think it will impact international travel. I think people will be a little bit more careful about traveling.
0: Well, that's the war in Iraq, you know, the potential war in Iraq. But mm-hmm. I meant was the rise in China. How do you think that affects life in Guam and Guam's near-term future?
1: Well, you know, so in, in that instance, I think there's going to be a lot more opportunity for Chinese to come out to the region and try to invest and try to uh, see if they can position themselves in such a way that they can take advantage of the lack of attention from uh, perhaps the United States and and other regions and see if they can step in and invest uh, not just to invest but invest so that they can get a foothold in the Pacific region and so I think as we look at our neighbors as we look at the CNMI, as we look at the FSM as we look at Palau, I think you're going to see uh, an increase in not only Chinese political engagement Mm -hmm. uh, but also in their economic engagement and I think There's the potential for that to raise the Pacific Mm -hmm. in a way that the Pacific benefits from more economic uh, activity. And, you know, it's the speed of money, not necessarily the amount of money. So there's potential for Guam to actually benefit from some of this if we can be sort of a hub in the middle and take and advantage of it. our telecommunications and run through the exactly. island. Uh, exactly. Is and transportation. And transportation.
0: And and actually the uh, also as an outpost of U.S. law there is a, and, and U.S. systems here, there is a sort of a little cottage industry of people coming to take their accountancy exam just to be uh, certified, you know, under in U.S. law for as an accountant and other things. So, um, and also we're seeing some nations, t- uh, Moves of China in, in near us, and the the casino in Sa- in Saipan is, I believe, the Chinese owned. The, the, the one that is now coming close and that's been raided by the FBI, you know, and as mm-hmm. well as some CNMI my officials. So there's that. Um, I, I think also, um, but you know, one of the things I think why we haven't seen the major uh, investment in, in that China's done within the region is had to do with uh, U.S. policy towards China, and that may have restricted uh, that kind of investment here in Guam, which. Like the the freely associated states is much more wide open. Um, Do you not think that the rising competition would may discourage Chinese investment in Guam, but might also, although the rest of the region would benefit from it, and there, there since our our tourism industry is so based on regional travel, that that may. Uh, that's how we get the, the benefit from, from that purpose?
2: Uh, rather I, than I believe
1: orders. Guam is really going to benefit from a second-order effect. I do not see China being able to invest directly mm-hmm. in the United States because there's also one thing that has happened around the world, and that is in the last five years, the U.S. Treasury has taken such incredible measures to restrict the movement of money globally mm-hmm. to the point that You can't even transfer $500 from one bank to another without coming up with so much paperwork that it's just unbelievable. So the ability for the Chinese to actively invest in Guam Mm. is nigh impossible given all of the restrictions that the Department of Treasury puts on them. But setting that aside, if China does do what they have been doing and increases the amount of development that's going on let's say in the FSM in the CNMI in Palau the number of people coming through those regions the general economic activity of the Pacific mm. is going to increase and then the people in those islands so
2: exactly so
1: as the people of the FSM start to take advantage of you know investment by the Chinese mm-hmm. then we're their closest neighbor. And sure. instead of
0: uh, they don't have a Kmart yet, so who are they going to? Instead money
1: of Guam against? being the the big neighbor who always sort of takes care of them, they're going to now be looking to Guam to help supply architects and engineers to help design the the hotels and mm-hmm. supplies to help them open stores. So th- there, I mean, there is a hopeful sign on this one. There is oh. the potential that as China invests in the neighborhood, that the quality of the neighborhood goes up, and Guam also benefits from that. Uh, through second and third order effects so it's one positive that i potentially see happening in the next 5 to 10 years
0: well on that hopeful note that's i think it's a great note to go out on this program here especially since you know you know at the top of the hour is going to be news and that may reverse <laughs> that trend but i i think that's a, a good perspective to end i think a, a conversation that's gone way too quickly for an hour and a half you know but uh, I do want to thank you, Ginger, for t- taking time off in your busy schedule to be here and to share your your uh, your, uh, your viewpoint here and your knowledge and your expertise with uh, myself and, and the audience. Um, again, um, this is the Data Hub with Tyrone Titano. My name is Tyrone Titano. I'm uh, Director of the Bureau of Statistics and Plans. And if you like the show, please tune in next, every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. here on Sorenson Broadcasting. And if you want to catch up on, on this show or future shows. You can find it on K57.com uh, in, in future shows we're going to discuss not only uh, major world issues that, that affect the island, but also uh, we're going to have updates on the uh, census, uh, 2020 Census of Guam on issues dealing with uh, climate change. The governor's recently established a new climate change resilience commission that's uh, doing some great work. And uh, before the end of this month here we're going to bring in uh, some people involved in the Guardians of the Reef program uh, that the uh, Bureau uh, conducts, which involves uh, training high schoolers to go uh, talk to uh, uh, third graders about the reefs. And that program is going to be happen next month. Uh, also next month is the Bureau's uh, Assembly of Planners uh, Symposium, an all-day event that will uh, deal with the major uh, issues uh, confronting uh, Guam's future, not just, just climate change, but issues regarding economic development and sustainable development. Uh, So I'll bring in some uh, people that were speaking at, at that conference. And um, again, uh, this is a uh, thank you very much for listening here. And this has been a uh, a great hour and a half. Thank you again, Ginger. Happy well, Taylor, New Year. I
1: have to say it's a great way to start off the new year. I'm really excited about your show. I'm going to listen to the podcast as I'm traveling around the world. I'll be back here in Guam in a couple of weeks, of course, uh, fresh with news, and and we'll see. You know, maybe I'll drop by and give you a five minute update. Absolutely. But I'll tell you, you are a natural on the radio, and and I really like the idea of long formats. Uh, I think people are. Uh, hungering for different formats and different things that they can listen to and I'm really excited. I think you've got a great future in radio
2: uh-huh.
1: along with the rest of the team at uh, Sorensen Broadcasting. I love listening to all the shows so this will be great uh, and it's great that the internet will allow people to check it out from Absolutely. anywhere in the world. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, you know, Best of luck with everything here on Guam. Coral reefs and, and everything that you're doing are so important. So I'm really looking forward to listening.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Ginger. And again, I'm Tyrone Titesnow, and thank you so much for tuning in.